Verse 23 of chapter 21. And when Jesus entered the temple, the chief priests and the elders of the people came up to Jesus as he was teaching and said, By what authority are you doing these things? And who gave you this authority? Jesus answered them, I also will ask you one question. And if you tell me the answer, then I will also tell you by what authority I do these things. The baptism of John. From where did it come? From heaven or from man? And they discussed it among themselves, saying, well, if we say from heaven, he's going to say to us, why then did you not believe him? But if we say from man, we are afraid of the crowd, for they all hold that John was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, we do not know. And he said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. Jesus continued, what do you think? A man had two sons, and he went in to the first and said, Son, go and work in my vineyard today. And he answered, I will not. But afterwards he changed his mind and went. And he went to the other son and said the same. And he answered, I go, sir, but did not go. Which of the two did the will of his father? The religious leaders said, the first. Jesus said to them, truly I say to you, the tax collectors... And the prostitutes go into the kingdom of God before you. For John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him. But the tax collectors and the prostitutes believed him. And even when you saw it, you did not afterwards change your minds and believe him. Here another parable. There was a master of a house who planted a vineyard and put a fence around it, and dug a wine press in it and built a tower and leased it to tenants. And went into another country. When the season for fruit drew near, he sent his servants to the tenants to get his fruit. And the tenants took his servants and beat one, killed another, and stoned another. Again, he sent other servants more than the first, at first, and they did the same to them. Finally, he sent his son to them, saying, They will respect my son. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, This is the heir, come, let us kill him and have his inheritance. And they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. When, therefore, the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? They answered to him, He will put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him his fruits in their season. Jesus said to them, Have you never read in the scriptures the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone? This was the Lord's doing. And it is marvellous in our eyes. Therefore I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. And the one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, he will crush him. When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard his parables, they perceived that he was speaking about them. And although they were seeking to arrest him, they feared the crowds because they held him to be a prophet. Keep your Bibles open. Usually I ask, I ask a question to start off with, but now I'm going to ask you to finish the sentence. Okay? I don't believe in Jesus because... I don't believe in Jesus because... Perhaps fit in what your own reason would be if you're here for the first time and thinking about it. 
Uh, or think of what it used to be. Or maybe if you're a Christian, think of, I don't listen to Jesus and do what he says because. Maybe finish that sentence off. Well, it's very normal for us to refer to an event or a person that puts us off Jesus. I spoke to someone this week who told me that he doesn't believe in God because the nuns at his school treated him awfully. When, and he's in his 60s now. Some people will say a particular historical or philosophical reason for not taking Jesus seriously. Maybe they say it's all made up. A reason not to take Jesus seriously or to even open the Bible. What we don't tend to say is what we're going to see tonight. We don't tend to say, I don't believe in Jesus because my heart is deceptive, vain and evil. People don't say that, do they? I don't believe in Jesus because my heart is deceptive, vain and evil. But that's exactly what we see in this passage tonight. Who do we see it from? Well, we see it shown to us from the religious leaders of Jesus' time. But their unbelief is characteristic of all unbelief. And even the unbelief that says, I've heard what Jesus said, but I'm not really going to do anything about it. So unbelief, first of all, is deceptive. And we're going to see that from verses 23 to 32. Should we read that? And when Jesus entered the temple, the chief priests and the elders of the people came up to him as he was teaching and said, By what authority are you doing these things and who gave you this authority? Jesus answered them, I also will ask you one question. If you tell me the answer, then I also will tell you by what authority I do these things. The baptism of John, from where did it come? From heaven or from man? And they discussed it among themselves, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say to us, Why then did you not believe him? But if we say from man, we are afraid of the crowd. For they all hold that John was a prophet. They answer Jesus, we do not know. On several occasions through this passage, we're told what the Pharisees saw, what they see, and even that they understood the implications of what they saw. So not only did they see something and witness it themselves, they actually understand what it means for, for them. Let me show you a few of them. In verse 25, we just read it. They understood that to say John's baptism was real, as in from heaven, that would require them to believe him. (laughs) Believe what he's saying about the judgments come and believe what he's saying about Jesus. And that's something they're unwilling to do. In verse 32, they saw, it says verse 32, even when you saw it, you did not afterwards change your mind and believe him. What's just before that is the tax collectors and the prostitutes coming in and repenting. They saw what true repentance looked like in the lives of the tax collectors and prostitutes who did believe it. And in verse 38, they see, what do they see in verse 38? Finally, he sent his son, saying they will respect my son, but when the tenants saw the son. Okay, so they're seeing that he is the heir, and actually that's the reason for dispatching him in that parable, isn't it? So that they can get hold of what belongs to him, his inheritance. They can keep for themselves what rightly belongs to him. In verse 45, finally, at right at the end of our passage, what do they see? When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard his parables, they perceived that he was speaking about them. 
So despite what we may think about unbelief in us and in the world around us, it's never uninformed. It's never in the dark. It's not passive, but it's actually an active refusal to believe what has been made known. It's a refusal to believe what has been made known. So unbelief is deceptive. We can see that, can't we, in in these guys? They they just know what's true, but they refuse to say what's true. To put it another way, unbelief is not fueled by our ignorance, but by our arrogance. And we're going to see this as we go through. It brings us to that next step on your sheet. And it's unbelief is vain. By vain, I mean that unbelief's chief concern is not the truth, but how we appear to others. How we appear to others. We can see that in them, can't we? In verse 26, the leaders withhold their honest answer because they don't want to lose popularity among the people. It features again at the end in verse 46. Their desire, we're told, is to arrest Jesus there and then. And yet they conceal that true intention because the crowd held him to be a prophet. In fact, that's what they have uh, to get. It. That's why they have to get a tip off from an insider, an informant like Judas. Consider the tenants in that second parable for a moment. We've already seen that they saw that the son and that he was that the son was the heir, and they wanted what belonged to him. Well, the Pharisees and the religious leaders, they. They clearly wanted the approval approval of the crowds. Yeah? They wanted everyone thinking that they were the important ones. So what they're robbing from the son, from Jesus, and not wanting to yield over to him is actually popularity. The glory, the praise, the honour. That's what they're saying. If we kill him, we can keep that for ourselves. So unbelief is essentially vanity. It's vanity. And it's vanity because we want the approval of our lives too. So I would much rather people approved and gave me glory for my life than give God the glory for my life. You see that? So when God turns up on the scene and he's the one who rightly deserves the glory and honour, my reaction to him is based on the fact that I want to take the glory for myself. So unbelief is vain. And sometimes it's actually fear of what others think that actually keeps us from following Jesus. Isn't it? From taking him seriously. Because we hear what he says and we realise the implications are just massive. It's going to involve a huge change in our lives. Everyone's going to notice. We're going to suffer for the gospel. And fear of what others will think of us actually can keep us from following him. So it's just, it's vain. Uh, and sometimes that means we resolve to, we don't resolve to, to not listen to the Bible, but we've already decided never to let it change us. So what Jesus is going to say to us, we just sort of think, yeah, in one ear, out the other, we're just going to carry on. Because to, to do what he says is going to mean social suicide, isn't it? I mean, let's be honest about that. But it's what Ezekiel predicted, and he said these words, just listen to them for a minute. It's described in a really interesting way. Ezekiel predicted, he says, My people sit before you to listen to your words, 
but they do not put them into practice. With their mouths they express devotion, but to them you are nothing more than one who sings love songs with a beautiful voice and plays an instrument well. They hear your words, but do not put them into practice. So at the heart of unbelief is a vanity that says, I care too much what I'm going to look like. Actually, I don't want the glory to go to God or to Jesus. I just want to look good myself. So we're seeing, aren't we, that unbelief is... is, We're far more responsible for our own unbelief than we realise. It's deceptive. It's vain. And one more rung on that ladder. It's painful, isn't it, to see it played out in the Pharisees, but it's good for us. Um, And then we're going to see the second point. Let's look at that last point. Unbelief is evil. Verse 39. What do the people do with the son in that parable? It's not a rhetorical question. They kill him. (laughs) Okay, they kill him. So the picture we get of unbelief here, of all unbelief, of all sin, is that we would put the living God to death. (laughs) His son, that we would do that to him. We've seen that uh, unbelief is deceptive. Uh, It's not a lack of seeing, but a refusal to respond to what is seen. We've seen that it's vain. We want to keep the glory for our lives and don't want to yield it to Jesus. In verse 39, Jesus simply takes us and the Pharisees to the logical conclusion of that, of where it leads. If Jesus turns up, and I want to be the one who receives the glory and not him, whereas he's the one who rightly deserves the glory, what am I going to do? Unbelief is evil because um, in the presence of Jesus, pride is shown for what it really is. Our pride is shown for what it really is. It's a violent rebellion against God. Does that surprise you? That unbelief is that serious? Is that, you know, is that um, forceful? It's a violent rebellion against God. Let's read verses 43 to 45. No, let's not read that 43 to 45. We'll do that in a minute. But we don't tend to think of our unbelief like this or unbelief at all like this, do we? We tend to think that either people know something or they don't. So if they know something, they believe. If they don't know, well, they can't believe. We think like that. But if they know, if within that definition, no one is really responsible for their unbelief, are they? How can they be? But here we see that we do know and we refuse. That means we are responsible. That's what Paul says in Romans 1, if if you've read it before. He says, For the invisible attributes of God, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly seen ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they, we, are without excuse. It's quite humbling, isn't it, to see that? Now, unbelief leads some people, doesn't it, to silence or erase Jesus today. (laughs) So... You know, the equivalent, the modern equivalent of putting Jesus to death, well, it's erasing his existence, isn't it? And so we'll take Jesus and we'll say he didn't really exist. Basically, we can't trust the record of Jesus existing, so he probably didn't exist. 
And that's one way of doing exactly the same thing. Of wanting him gone entirely. So it's worth seeing that from this passage. That unbelief is uh, deceptive. It's deception in our hearts. It's fantasy in our hearts. And that means it's evil. There's no two, two ways about it. Unbelief is evil. Not taking Jesus seriously is evil. But now um, we're going to see two things. First we're going to see um, that God's judgment is fair. And then we're going to see um, that Jesus is um, the way of salvation. So let's look at that first. God, this means that God's judgment is fair. And we're going to see that from verses 40 to 41. Let's read that. Jesus asks a question of them. The Pharisees understand what the question is. They even get the answer right. Jesus says, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what's he going to do? The answer is, he's going to put them to a miserable end. Um, and he's going to let out the vineyard to other, other people who will give him the fruit. The honour that he deserves. So it's not hard to work out the answer to that question. It's, a, it's, it's, it's true, isn't it? That he's going to respond to the way that they have treated him and his son. Like that. That's true. And, and the Pharisees could see that. They just didn't think that they were the ones in danger of it. Okay? They thought that maybe there were other people who were in danger of God's judgment, but that's not for them. Actually, we're all rebels awaiting the return of the master. But if that were all there was to know, it would be desperately hopeless, wouldn't it? But that brings us to our second point and our main take home from all of this. Don't be crushed, fall on Jesus. And we're going to see that from verses 42 to the end. Shall I read that? Verse 42. Jesus said to them, have you never read in the scriptures the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone? This was the Lord's doing and it is marvellous in our eyes. Therefore I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. And the one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces and when it falls on anyone it will crush him. Despite dealing some pretty heavy blows here, Jesus has actually been lovingly exposing the truth of who he is. It's really sown the whole way through this passage. He has, in fact, even answered their original question. What authority do you have? In that second parable, he's, he's, pitted, he's um, depicted himself as the son. Jesus is God's son. And he carries the full weight of his authority. So Jesus has, in fact, answered their question. And in verse 42, as we've just read, Jesus gives one further revelation, but this will be his last. He says this, have you never read in the scriptures? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvellous in our eyes. Now, I did architecture in university. I still probably needed to look up what a cornerstone was, Okay. Um, so don't worry, um, cornerstone is the cornerstone <laughs> in a house. Um, 
And uh, it is the foundation stone. It's pretty important. It's a big stone and everything's going to be built from it. But the picture we get here is of a, a stone that's been rejected for its awkwardness and size. The builders can't find a place for it. And so they chuck it out. And yet another builder comes along and sees that same stone. And it is the perfect size and shape for his new building project. This is the picture we get from that psalm we just read at the start of this service. And the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This quote is from that psalm and Jesus is speaking about a future event. But what is the event? When does this happen? When will that rejected stone become the cornerstone? What is the stone even? <laughs> Why are we talking about stones? Um, well, it might have been it seemed a mystery, um, but Jesus has been talking about it all along. And he's talked, told us again and again about his death and resurrection. And so Jesus is the rejected stone. And his reinstallment as the cornerstone, when does that take place in his resurrection? So the point at which the, 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 he gets placed, put in place, established, set, set in place, is at his resurrection. And if you just turn back to Psalm 118, I'll show you first from there and then I'll give you a couple of other places it comes up. Psalm 118, verses 17 and 18. Just before the bit about the cornerstone, in verse 22. The psalmist says this, I shall not die, but I shall live and recount the deeds of the Lord. The Lord has disciplined me severely, but he has not given me over to death. Uh, In... Acts 4.11 and 1 Peter 2, verse 7. Just write those two down and have a look at them later. Acts 4.11 and 1 Peter 2, verse 7. The apostles actually quote that, that psalm. The stone that the builders have rejected have become the cornerstone. And they're talking about Jesus and his death and his resurrection. They're telling people about his death and resurrection and they're saying this is, the, this is what this means. The stone that the builders have rejected have become the cornerstone. The surprise here is that no man would ever have thought this plan up. Only God could have thought this up. That the one, one who was rejected would actually be the one that he would put in place to start, start off his building project. And the surprise is also who will enter into that kingdom, isn't it? So if we go back to Matthew, chapter 20, 21. uh, Verse 31. Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, the tax collectors and prostitutes go into the kingdom of God before you. So the surprise isn't just that this rejected stone is actually the key cornerstone of God's building project, there's actually the surprise of who God includes in the new kingdom. And it's the scumbags 
It's the scumbags. Tax collectors and prostitutes was code, you know, in their day for sex offenders and, you know, anyone else who would like to maybe set um, salesmen on the phone. Maybe them. Um, those considered to be the most immoral and indecent, those people just couldn't trust. You would never even, you wouldn't even want them to hang out with your children. Yeah? Those people. And yet they are the ones who are going into this kingdom. They are the ones who are being placed next to the cornerstone of Jesus in this temple building project. They have been brought in. And the people who are decent and consider themselves to be decent, they they refuse to enter. In the next parable, if we were to look at it, and we will do on Tuesday, uh, or, or whenever you meet, it's about an invitation to a wedding feast and the people who were invited, they don't want to go. They're the people in the first parable who say, we will go, but, but they don't. Jesus is on the scene and they refuse him. And so that surprises that, um, yeah, or the surprises who um, actually does respond Verse 42 and 44 give us our two options. And we're going to finish with this. Uh, Verse 42, we've read it, that Jesus is the cornerstone. And now we're going to read verse 44. It says this. After Jesus has said, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruit. Jesus says this. The one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. The the only two options for how we respond to Jesus are we either, he either is to us the firm foundation for our lives, the security we cling to now and for eternity, or he's the wrecking ball. And that's what he will be when he returns. He will will wreck our pride. (laughs) He will wreck our rebellion against him and he will smash it to pieces. You think of some of those pictures of Jesus in the Psalms. The son who has the, uh, the pots, you know, cracks the pots, um, smashes them to pieces. You know, that is the truth of what we are faced with. Jesus is either the cornerstone of our lives. He is the, the, the bigger, big deal of our lives. And we build everything else from there. Or he is nothing to us, but he is the one who is going to come to judge. So, what does that mean for you? Well, I guess if you're new to Jesus, it's going back to what we saw at the start, isn't it, really? Answering that question, I don't believe in Jesus because, what would your own answer be? It's worth thinking that through. I don't believe in Jesus because. But actually, even if we think that our unbelief doesn't make us responsible. What we've seen here says the opposite. It shows that our hearts are full of self-deception, vanity and evil towards God. We reject the God who made us and we want to erase him from our lives. We may consider Jesus to be irrelevant now, but actually his resurrection from death establishes him as the signature stone on which the whole of God's eternal kingdom rests and holds together. 
And that's what we're going to discover when he returns. So for Jesus to make us clear to that for Jesus to make that clear to us now is so that we would not be unprepared for that day. Either we receive Jesus now as the firm foundation for our lives, his death and his resurrection, which alone can bring us into relationship with God. Or we're going to face him on the day when he returns. We need uh, the prayer of Psalm 118. You don't need to turn to it now, but I'll just read it out. It's those verses in between the ones we read. Uh, So we read the bit about uh, the the stone being rejected. And we read the bit before about the, the life after death. In between it says this. The prayer in that psalm is this. Simply, open to me, God, the gates of righteousness, that I may enter through them and give thanks to you. This is the gate of the Lord. The righteous shall enter through it. Shall I read that again? The prayer is, open to me the gates of righteousness, that I may enter through them and give thanks to the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord. The righteous shall enter through it. Simple prayer, isn't it? It's a prayer of faith, believing that Jesus is the way. Uh, If you would call yourself a Christian because you go to church, it is good, isn't it, to heed the warning in this passage about religious hypocrites who assumed they were God's people (laughs) until Jesus turned up. Their security, which which did turn out to be false, was in their behaviour and in their building, in their religious offerings and activities, and in their temple. And there's, if you equate those today, uh, in my charitable giving, in my whatever it is, that's a good thing to do, or in my attendant church attendance. And people will think, hey, I'm a Christian because I've got those two things. And yet the shock of this passage is that they didn't see any need for Jesus. In fact, they turned against him entirely. It showed their hearts were unchanged and still full of proud unbelief. And the truth is that Jesus will be more pleased with tax collectors and the socially immoral who repent on hearing about the coming judgment than he will be with outwardly decent people who don't think they need to repent. You did not believe him. And yet they did. So heed the warning of this passage. Go away, think about it, pray about it. I don't want to be the, relig- the religious who turn away from, from Jesus and my heart remains unchanged and actually I'm in rebellion against him. If, if God could show me that, then at least I would not face his judgment. If you are a Christian, this passage is actually, and Matthew's Gospel is actually showing us what God's building project is all about. Um, It's all leading up, isn't it, to Matthew 28, verse 19, which says, Jesus says, all authority have been given to me, therefore, what? Go and make disciples. (laughs) So God's building project, this is all leading up to, and is all what Matthew's gospel is about. The last and the least being brought into his kingdom. And we are those 
who have been brought in by the death of Jesus in our place, by the resurrection, and that we are, we are with him, and he establishes us in his future kingdom. Isn't that an amazing thing? We are those who have been brought in so we can go and find others and invite them in. But we, I guess we might be tempted to move towards those who have morally decent lives, who we prefer for our children to hang out with. But Jesus says, well, we'll see in that next, pas- that next parable um, when we look at it on Tuesday, the invitation is for everyone. And, and, and it's perhaps even those who are in our eyes and in the eyes of the world seemingly made an absolute wreck of their lives that, that might actually, that are probably more likely to, to, to listen to this message and to repent. So let's listen to that. And let's be involved in the building project that God is doing. That he has established his son already for this purpose. Through the resurrection. And this is the building project to get involved with. Whatever you spend your lives doing. This is what will last for eternity. Let's pray. Father God, our hearts are deceptive, vain and evil. Our unbelief shows us that. You speak so clearly and yet our hearts do not want to um, take seriously what you say. Um, But Lord, you are so gracious and patient, not wanting any to perish. Thank you that you have given us today to respond to you. Thank you that you show us, even those who are scathing of you and ignoring you, you show them and us who your son is and just how glorious he is now seated in heaven. Thank you that you show us that that is the big decision of our lives, the big um, the big uh, future of our lives, the day when he returns. Please would you prepare us for that day, uh, that we would see in him the foundation uh, that we need, the salvation that we need, the forgiveness from you. Please would you help us to build our lives on him and not to build on sand or anywhere else, Lord. We know that, that when that um, storm of judgment, as we've been sort of seeing a bit of, Um, depicted in the weather recently as that storm of judgment comes the only thing that will stand is anything that's built on the rock on Jesus Uh, so we pray um, that you would really work that into our hearts that this wouldn't just be something we, we hear and think we've heard and do nothing about we pray this in Jesus name Amen